I know of, of one woman who pretended to be ill, did not go to a family wedding. Husband went off to the family wedding and she had the moving truck ready and by the time he came home, she and the kids were gone. I'm Bill Mitchell and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. Today, my guest is Beth Sturman. For the past 15 years, Beth has been the executive director at Laurel House in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Laurel House is a comprehensive domestic violence agency serving individuals, families, and communities in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania for 40 years. Beth has more than 30 years in human services. She is a fierce advocate for the individual and families Laurel House serves and has helped to expand their services from two locations to five. Beth Sturman is a recognized expert on domestic violence, meaning that she understands the causes, the prevalence, how to detect it, how to find help, how to remain safe, and how to break free. Beth and my family have been close since 2006 when we met her at one of our Kristen's Crusade run walks, which brought awareness to dating violence. My family has immense respect and admiration for Beth. You know, Beth, one of the things that I realized I was faced with in that first year was that I could tell people about what happened to Kristen, but I didn't know how to tell them why something like that happens. So meeting someone like you, I felt like I could go to somebody who could fill in parts that I could never figure out. So really, that's why I came to you then, and that's why I come to you now. But let me ask you this, Beth. What circumstances led you into domestic violence, into this field as a career, and how did you decide to take this particular route? Thank you, Bill. First, I'm really honored that you asked me, and you know that you and your family are very special to me. So um, this means a lot to me to have the chance to do this. Many years ago, I actually worked in in the Bay Area in California in the um, electronics industry. Wanted to do something, quote unquote, more meaningful with um, with the mm-hmm. professional work that I was doing, and wanted to get into human services. So I my very first job in human services happened to be as a secretary in a um, day program for battered women. And that was really just a coincidence. I didn't choose that it was the first place that offered me a human services job. And I learned so much. I worked there for about two years. I learned so much from the social workers who worked there and from the people, the women that came in for help. And it was my first introduction to this kind of work as a field. And I went on from there to work a lot with families and especially families that were headed, single head of household, headed by women, many of them poor, but not all of them poor, some for different circumstances were were receiving services. And I was really touched by the challenges that people in general, single parents, but especially women and single women face in terms of just making their way in the world, whether with or without the financial means. And so when this opportunity came to work at Laurel House, I was thrilled to to be able to do this work. I had worked previously at Project Home in Philadelphia with a lot of women who were homeless in part due to domestic abuse, although that wasn't the focus of the programs, but I could see that underlying issue had led a lot of them to the situation of homelessness. And I was also on a a mayor's task force at that time for domestic violence. So this was the perfect opportunity and it kind of, it is domestic violence and it's a lot of, it encompasses a lot of other issues that you know, humans encounter as well. So it's it's something that's very rewarding to me. Now, when you went to Laurel House, when you took the job, did you come in as executive director? I did. Yes. (laughs) That's a a good start. It was a good start. I had many years ago in the Bay Area in the 80s been an executive director of a, a shelter for women and children. And again, it wasn't a domestic violence shelter, but many of those families were in need of shelter because of domestic violence. Well, you know, one thing that that I've thought about 
right from right from what happened to Kristen was that our situation was such that we we never saw it coming. I mean, we were cruising along. Our daughter was graduated. Our son was in the last couple of years of high school. Everything seemed to be working just fine. And then we got a call from detectives and and we had a lot of catching up on on the subject of domestic violence besides obviously putting our our pieces back together in our own lives. But when I think of the DV field as a career choice, to me, you know, on the outside looking in, it looks like it's having to work in the midst of the worst that humanity has to offer and people controlling and abusing other people. And, and my question is, how do you and others who do that, how do you face it and deal with it on a day-to-day basis? Really good question, Bill. Thank you. It is the worst of humanity or some of the worst of humanity, but I also work with some of the best of humanity as far as the people that I work with, the people in the community that support the work that we do, and also some of the people who come to us for help. It's phenomenal to me, the courage and the tenacity that many of the folks who who reach out for help, it's amazing what they bring to it too. So what that's one of the ways that, that we face it and deal with it. We support each other. We have encouragement from the community and from our supporters and just working with the, the families and primarily women and their kids is can be extremely rewarding. And pre-pandemic, when some of those little kids hugged us, it it made it all, it made the days easier. Mm-hmm. And now with that, without the uh, in-person hugs, we still do a lot of virtual work with both the women and the children. That's very rewarding. Well, question for you would be after your 15 years with Laurel House and its course continuing, mm-hmm. can you think of maybe the top two or three lessons you've learned about life itself from your experience working in this field? Sure. One of the most important things that I've seen and learned really is that everything isn't always what it seems to be. And I have, once I tell people, once people find out where I work, people start sharing their own stories of growing up in a household where they witnessed domestic abuse or having experienced it themselves or having a family member or loved one experience it. So it's so much more common than we ever would have known. So one of those lessons is that first of all, people's lives aren't always what they look like on the surface. And second of all, that when we start sharing about our own lives, sometimes we can be helpful to other people. So that's one. Uh Another one is that some of the abusive significant others that uh, we have, you know, helped our, our folks deal with can be very charming and can look like pillars of the community and are respected as pillars of the community. And again, I guess that still falls into the category of not everything is what it looks like on the surface, but this is- That's right. This covers so much more than than just sort of the stereotype of, of who might be in a situation of who might be an abuser or who might be in a situation of being abused. I mean, doesn't that kind of put you in a place sometimes once you realize that or you've seen it play out over and over where you've met this charming mm-hmm. significant other and then you hear of the next thing, this woman comes in and she tells you about the latest episode. I mean, I would think if if that were me in that situation, watching that, I would get to the point where I just don't trust anybody. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so okay. Anytime, okay. Anytime any of our single staff members start dating, we run criminal checks on whoever they're dating, which oh my I never would have done in any, you know, I've never, it never would have occurred to me in any other setting to do that. So now, even if my friends tell me they're going to be dating someone, I'm like, okay, hang on a minute. How do you spell that last name? My um, goodness. So I think it makes, you know, folks who work in this field a little more cautious, but that's not a bad thing. It doesn't totally jade us against the human race. It just makes us a little more careful. I mean, ha- have you had it happen where somebody begins to date someone, you do the check and you actually run across something that mm-hmm. that is alarming? Yes, we have. <laughs> yes, we oh, have. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, you know, people have things in their background and it's, yeah, people have things in their background that... Um, they don't always put in the match.com profile. Yes. So uh, I, I, in doing some background, you know, doing my homework about this today, one of the things that I found I thought was interesting, it was from about four years ago, you were interviewed and you were asked a question, something like, are there any particular stories that stuck with you or struck you in a certain way? Reading from that article, it said a young woman named Kristen Mitchell was killed three weeks after she graduated from St. Joseph's University. 
She was starting a great job, had a wonderful apartment, and was killed by her boyfriend. I've gotten very close to that family, which of course is my family, and seen what devastation has done. I just saw that interview a few days ago, and I never knew that you had said that. So when I ran across it, it really was really struck me. Can you tell me, can you think back to, to when you first knew about that or first kind of came upon us? I can. I actually, yes, I do remember uh, what it felt like when I first, you know, heard the story of Kristen's um, tragic loss and of your family's tragic loss. And uh, at the time, I had um, two nieces, but my older niece especially was pretty much in the same situation as, um, you know, recently graduated from a, a good university, starting a good job, nice apartment, and all I could picture was what it would feel like for for me and for our obviously for my brother and sister in law, her siblings, and for our whole family if something so um, inconceivable were to happen to her. And it made it very real that certainly that was a very real possibility. Would have been a real possibility. So it touched me. I think it would have touched me anyway, but it particularly touched me because of my niece. I think it's really important for people to realize. This could be someone that you know and love and think about what the devastation would be if your person was taken from you. That's one of the things that helps a lot of us here at the, at the agency stay motivated to keep doing this work. The prevalence is, I mean, maybe you want to speak to that for just a moment, the, the prevalence of domestic violence, and later we can talk about dating violence and what are the differences. But I, again, I have to go back to before Kristen was killed. But if someone said, well, you know, what is the prevalence? How many couples have this going on, intimate partner violence and sometimes murder. You know, how, how, do you, how, do you, uh, how do you put statistics or numbers on that? Well, statistically, and the Center for Disease Control and other places that track this say that about one in four women and in the United States and one in seven men at some point in their life will experience domestic violence. A lot of it's not reported. So I think that's probably, those statistics are probably underestimates. Um, then we also have to factor in that even if a person is not experiencing as an adult domestic violence, what it was like for children who witnessed domestic violence in their household as they were growing up and had traumatizing and how that impacts their whole life. So I think the ripple effect and the long-term effect is, is far greater than that. But those are what the sort of official numbers are right now. They're horrifying, absolutely horrifying. I think if someone had asked me years ago, I, I just would say, I have no idea. But I wouldn't have guessed it was anything like you said, one in four, one in three, one in seven, any of those types of numbers. Even though I know they're all correct, I, I still struggle to picture that. Mm -hmm. Before my daughter was murdered back in 2005, I knew very little about it. I thought it only pertained probably to married couples. I mean, I really, I guess the question would be, what would be kind of your, your textbook definition of domestic violence? That's a really good question. It's kind of a tough question. What we've seen is the lines blur between what we call domestic abuse and what we call domestic violence. You know, violence would typically include either somebody physically hitting, assaulting, pushing, shoving the other person or throwing something, property destruction, that kind of thing. And the abuse is a little less hard to put a finger on, but um, can be equally as devastating emotionally and, and traumatically, and also can can ultimately culminate in domestic violence or domestic homicide. It's typically there's a, a control, an underlying control dynamic where the person that's abusive is using that violence and or abuse to intimidate and, and control the person that, that's being abused. And so it looks sometimes on the surface like just anger and quote unquote a fight, but really there's that dynamic underneath of, of trying to control, trying to make sure that the other person is behaving and doing the things that the abuser wants them to do. So one of the things that I have struggled a bit with over the course of time are terms. I've been gently corrected at different times. So I thought I'd take a run at it, but there's domestic violence, dating violence, and then uh, the prosecutor of the case talked about intimate partner violence, which was totally new to me. I never saw that term coming. Kind of walk me through your take on those, or, or is that just uh, you know, uh, just something that just just even people in the field would have different definitions or ways they send those up? 
Right. They're all uh, people in the field. We might have slightly different interpretations of that. The reality is they're all pretty darn similar. Um, they're all one person exerting power and control or attempting to exert power and control over another person. Domestic violence would be the physical action of one person on another person that they're related to or that they're in a romantic relationship with. Teen dating violence is really very similar. It's just between teens that are dating and probably not living in the same household, but are still you know, romantically involved. And then the intimate partner violence, again, just suggests that the people have some kind of an intimate, personal, romantic relationship, regardless of how old they are. And then the abuse is you know, verbal, financial, sexual, emotional, and can, the, the damage from from domestic abuse can go so deep because people trust the people typically trust the people that they're involved with and then get caught off guard over and over again when the person is verbally berating them or mocking them or or calling them names that kind of thing which can just be devastating for people and can ultimately chip away at their self-esteem and and then leave them more vulnerable to the actual physical abuse so Beth, I've had some people tell me that the the emotional abuse that they had to withstand, they felt at times was was even worse than the violence that they, the physical violence they withstood, have withstood. It that it it went deeper and it stayed with them longer. Does that seem to ring true to you? Yes. So many of the folks that come to us for counseling have shared exactly what you just said that the if you have a broken bone or a black eye or a wound of some sort. It's harder to deny that that actually happened. Mm. If someone is berating somebody, constantly undermining them, calling them names, et cetera, and then saying, oh, you can't take a joke or you're too um, sensitive, it's harder for the person to the person that's being abused to really understand, like, no, this is not a healthy relationship. This is not the way that somebody who allegedly cares for me should be treating me. And then oftentimes the people who are being abused buy into it, right? I mean, they just, they get to the point where like, you know what, I, I think what I'm hearing is true. I think I am not worthwhile. You know, I think I make a lot of mistakes or I, you know, I don't prepare the meal properly or I don't take good enough care of this house or whatever, whatever the... Uh, Over time, it just chips away more and more into people's self-esteem. And as they become more isolated, which is another technique that abusers typically use, there's nobody counteracting that. There's nobody saying, gee, you're doing a great job here, or gee, I love the way you do this, or gee, you look great today. There's only somebody saying you didn't do this right, you're ugly, no one else would ever want you. And it's hard. It's harder and harder for the person that's the, being abused to counteract that in their own psyche. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, if that's if you're on a steady diet of somebody who is downgrading you, then you will be downgraded. When I think about domestic violence, even now, knowing what I know, there are certain maybe myths or stereotypes, and I'm sure you hear about them much more than I do. For instance, like domestic violence happens in the worst parts of city or it's caused by certain ethnic groups or races. But whatever I knew was completely stereotypical. And it's not true, right? I mean, it doesn't... It, no, it's not it, true. You know, research has proven it doesn't hold water and that it seems to be equally prevalent wherever you go. Do, have you found that to be true? Absolutely. This is not a respecter of economics or race or religion or anything else. And we have We've had people actually in our shelter from gated communities, and we've had people who have nothing, you know, who came from nothing in terms of what they own and everything in between. And what we found is that there are certain communities, especially the more high-end communities, where someone might be less likely to call the police when they hear a neighbor, something going on at the neighbor's house, or they might be less likely to call the police for themselves for help. For a variety of reasons, um, maybe the the person that's abusive has high standing in that community. Mm-hmm. Maybe, although the family may have uh, substantial financial means, the person that's being abused doesn't have access to those financial means. Mm-hmm. That's right. Consequently, wouldn't be able to have access to a good attorney. Maybe the kids are in. We've had a lot of situations where the kids are in a private school, or the kids are. You know, doing a lot of extracurricular activities and the abusive other parent is saying, well, you know, sure, go ahead and leave if you want the kids to go to public school in a bad, you know, in a bad school district, or if you don't want the kids to go to, you know, that lovely summer camp or whatever it is. So the kids often become 
especially when there's money involved, the kids often become a pawn of like, sure, if you want to put, or I'll take the kids, you know, you know, I could get a good attorney, I'll end up with custody of the kids, you'll never see your kids again. So a lot of reasons why someone in a higher income bracket might be reluctant to bring attention to the fact that this is happening in the household. And also, again, you go back to the same wearing down of the person's self-esteem to the point that they think that either they deserve it or that they can change it one or the other. And so again, they're less likely to go and make a change. For people who are not experienced, they have to ask themselves the question, how do other people get stuck in these relationships that appear to, to them and to other people that could be their friends or family and you know other, other people, maybe even coworkers, but you, but you look at someone who's in one of these relationships that appears to be very unhealthy or dangerous, and you ask the question, well, okay, if it is as bad as I hear it, why don't you just kind of like get out of there? You know, why don't you just kind of pack up your stuff when he isn't looking and go? Why, why don't people do that? Um, there are a variety of reasons. And this is kind of one of those analogies about how when you put a frog in a pot of water on the stove and the water is room temperature and the frog's happy, and then gradually you turn up the temperature. So that happens with the same kind of analogy with domestic abuse that, you know, people typically don't put their worst foot forward when they're starting a relationship. And then gradually as the um, temperature heats up and the abuse heats up, it it's hard for the person to even understand how bad it's gotten because their perspective is skewed at that point. And then there are a lot of barriers to leaving. Some of them are financial. Some of them are if people are married and ha may have a faith belief that, you know, marriage is for life. If people have family members who are saying, you know, you can't, you can't break up this family if they're worried about custody. And also what we know, unfortunately, is that when people leave and for a period of time, somewhere between six months to two years, depending on the situation, when they leave or when they're in the midst of breaking up is actually the most dangerous time for domestic homicide. And we always say that the people that we work with, the clients that we work with, they know the abuser better than we do. So they know what's likely to set the person off. They know if it's going to be more dangerous for them to leave than to stay. And then the, the custody, we've had a lot of families where the person, the other parents, very abusive and the person knows that when they leave, or if they leave, they'll have to have those children go to unsupervised visitation on a regular basis with the other parent who they know is dangerous mm -hmm. and damaging. Many, many reasons why people don't leave, but it's not, it, from the outside, it looks like, well, I would never put up with that. And actually, the first place I ever worked, the domestic violence agency where I was a secretary, we had a counselor who would always say, I would never put up with that. I would never put up with that. And then one day she came into work pretty traumatized because the man that she lived with had pushed her Oh! and she stayed with him and she got help and it worked out. But it was one of those things. It was one of those like light bulb moments where it's like, oh, well, it's not as clear cut as it seems when you're looking at it from the outside. And I never forgot that. That really struck me. I thought, wow, it isn't as easy as it looks and it's not as clear cut as it looks. You're right. And, and you know, I've had people come up and talk with me after I've given a speech. I, I had a ninth grade girl do this one time and I spoke at a high school and I've had people who were easily in their 40s or 50s. I've given a talk and they'll come up afterwards and saying, you know, I was in this relationship for all these years, especially the course people in their 40s and 50s, but they'll say I was in this relationship for all those years. And I really, until I heard you speak, I didn't think of it as abuse. I just thought he was difficult. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, he just had behavior that I that I just didn't like, but I kept trying my best to kind of get him back to the good guy that I remembered. Mm -hmm. In the case of the ninth grader, she had dated this guy for about six months and they somehow broke up and without, without uh, hell breaking loose. But I gave the talk and she just came up and said, thank you, because I went through all kinds of things dating this guy. And eventually we broke it off and, and nothing really bad happened. But until I heard your talk, I didn't realize it was abuse. And now I know at least I can put a term to what was happening to me. Wow. Bill, you've touched so many lives. That's really. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your family's story in a way that's helpful to other people. Well, it really is the least I can do. And I feel like as time passes, as I've had more experiences with people like you and, and others, where I've learned more and more, I feel like it's up to me to dispense it. You know, it's on it's on me to to take what 
I've gotten and pushing out. And that's really why I gave a lot of the speeches then this year, why I put the book out, you know, so, and the book was good because I could, I could tell all those things I used to be able to say in a speech, but a speech is a half an hour or 45 minutes, but a book can be in this case, 300 and some pages. And so, you know, I didn't have to walk away from anything I thought was precious that could, that could mm -hmm. uh, wake someone up or save could them. make a difference. Right. Sure. sure. It's been, I think one of the things that I have seen, because the first place that I worked was in 1980, when no people didn't talk publicly about domestic violence or domestic abuse, and even the way that law enforcement responded was very different mm -hmm. than it is today. And I think, you know, unfortunately, other people like your family who have experienced these terrible tragedies, as you're able to go forward and share your own experiences, it, you know, we always talk about breaking the silence. And the more that people talk about it, the more difficult it is for it to stay in the shadows and for people to have to live in secrecy. And I think that's a tremendous service. So thank you. No, again, thank, thank you too. I appreciate it. I mean, you're welcome. What can I possibly say? I've talked with people who were in law enforcement and talked about the way it was. I'm not sure how far back you have to go, but maybe it's 20 years ago. And yes, they'd show up at a house and they'd see a broken lamp and they'd see somebody was that the woman of the house was injured in some way, but she seemed to be like, um, she's alive. And, mm -hmm. and maybe she's even saying, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I probably shouldn't have called or, but they pretty much know what happened. And so they kind of sit down with both of them and say, look, you know, you two really, you can't be doing this. I mean, this is not good for you. And they talk the whole thing through. And then eventually kind of like the police would head to the door and they're not going to really write anything up and they'd leave. And, that's kind of the way that domestic violence stuff was handled back in those days. And it's it's completely different now. And and I know that there was a time when uh, 911 calls were, you know, just maybe not admissible in some cases. You know, some mm -hmm. somebody would have them thrown out. And now they're kind of at the top of the list of, of admissible evidence, right? That's correct. That's changed yeah. quite a lot. You know, and they, of course, you know, now the law looks at those calls as being this is the closest thing to knowing exactly what happened because it just happened mm -hmm. and drove somebody to pick up a phone and make a phone call and talk about what my husband's doing now right. or just did. So, Right. Before they have time to rethink or before the other person has time to apologize, <laughs> right in the heat of the moment when it's so scary. Or to, well, to apologize and maybe even threaten that if you go to police, this is what's going to happen around here. Correct. You know, how things are going to change and they won't be very good. My daughter was murdered in 2005 by her ex-boyfriend. And no, time doesn't heal all wounds. Since those dark days, I have given over 100 speeches and interviews. To be able to dispense such life-saving information, I needed to do a lot of research. Now it's all in one place. My daughter's story and our family's journey is now available in a book entitled When Dating Hurts. Available only on Amazon in paperback and ebook. If you have a child, a family member, or a friend between 16 and 24 years of age, I suggest you give When Dating Hurts a read. The information in this book has already saved lives. Are there ways to spot or detect when a person might be in a troubled or abusive relationship before it's too late? I mean, I think of my wife and I, we didn't have, you know, we live outside of Baltimore and Kristen was at school in Philadelphia. And the only real moment that we could both think back on when maybe there was an opening to ask more questions was Kristen was talking about this guy she was dating and said, it's not the perfect relationship. And that's about as far as she took it. I know my wife who told me about it later, but my wife and I both looked at that as well. I guess they're not a very good fit and that this was going to come and go. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no no real reason to stay on that. And of course, now being as experienced as we are, we would ask great questions, which is really what bystanders are coached, right? I mean, that's, mm -hmm. you know, people who really want to know about this. That's when you hear anything that seems like an opening like that and you say, well, okay, tell me, why is it not a perfect relationship or what would a perfect relationship be? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you just never know when that person may slide something out there that you say, oh, mm -hmm. there's something here. Yeah. But, you know, are there ways to spot or detect this before it gets to the point where it's it's really bad or it's too late or they, get, for instance, get married. And now we have this this uh, 
huge problem in the making that just put rings on his fingers. So first of all, let me just say that even with all the experience that I have, if my son said something like that to me, like, well, it's not a perfect relationship, I would have just assumed, okay, well, that, you know, don't get too attached to that one. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I w- it wouldn't necessarily even now dawn on me to say, to pursue that any further, but that's a great suggestion. Mm-hmm. One of the, the hallmarks is the isolation which often starts with, oh, honey, do we really have to go spend time with your parents? Or do we really need to go to dinner with your friends? I just love it when it's just the two of us. So it sounds like, oh, you know, they just want to really have this special time with me. Sure. But then all of a sudden you realize, gee, that person hasn't been hanging out with us. If it's a friendship, you know, a, a group of friends, like, gee, they haven't hung out with us for a long time, or she's never able to be on the phone anymore, or Gee, they never come for Sunday dinner anymore, that kind of thing. So those are some of the warning signs if the person starts to seem particularly isolated. But the other things we see, whether it's a coworker or a friend or a family member, um, something just seems off. They're not, they seem a little more reticent. They're a little more down. Something feels like, geez, they're just not as uh, enthusiastic about life as they used to be. Mm-hmm. And they seem troubled about something. We do try to to suggest to people that are concerned about a loved one or a coworker to ask those kinds of open-ended questions. Hey, I just want you to know you seem like something might be going on, and I don't want to pry, but I just want you to know I'm always here if you feel like talking. Um, is there anything I can help with? Just let me know, that kind of thing. If it seems really obvious to say I'm really concerned about you, I don't know what's going on, but I'd really love to be able to help you if there's anything I can do to help you. I think one of the most important things that we see is to try to not be judgmental, to try to not impose your solutions on the other person, and to just really leave the door open, like, I'm always here to talk if you want. Mm-hmm. You can call and talk to a counselor or an advocate and say, hey, I'm worried about this person. Can you give me some suggestions? And oftentimes, the advocate or the counselor, when they hear the specific reasons why the caller is concerned, can help them come up with a plan for you know, how to be as supportive as possible to that person that they're worried about. So Beth, you know, being being a great friend to someone who you think is being abused is maybe being a good listener, you know, and so you mm-hmm. you want you want to I mean the bottom line is you want to get that person to talk. And maybe in talking something will come out that you'll hear, but also they'll hear. Because you know they have to come to a conclusion that they're they're in a in a in an unhealthy relationship. If they don't get to that place, they're not getting out of it. And if they don't realize that it's dangerous. So what we've seen is, you know, for friends, neighbors, family members, certainly coworkers, when they're concerned about someone and they think hmm, maybe maybe it's the relationship, maybe it's un- they're in an unhealthy or dangerous relationship. It's so important to to uh, keep the communication open, to leave the door open for conversation, and to try to gently engage the person in conversation. Make sure they know that you're available to talk, you're concerned about, you're not sure what's going on, but you just want them to know if something's bothering them, you're welcome to. And one of the things is those informal contacts rather than a deep, you know, heart-to-heart conversation. Sometimes, hey, you want to run to the grocery store with me, and then you're talking in the car and something comes up in the car where sometimes people feel it's easier to talk than if you're having more direct conversation or maybe you're out doing something fun and just kind of encouraging the person, trying to get the person to open up a little bit. Really important if the person does start to share about what's going on in the relationship, not to say things like what my first instinct would be to say, like, you deserve better than that. Why are you putting up with that? Let me help you leave. Let me help you pack. But really important to just say, hey, you know, I know this is a really hard situation for you. I'm very concerned about you. I want you to be safe. And I want you to know that whatever you decide to do, I'll support you no matter what. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's always helpful if the person does start to confide and you do start, they do start to open up a little bit more about the relationship is to set up some kind of a code like, hey, if you ever need help and it's hard for you to make the call or, you know, might not, he might be listening and might not be, is think of some simple thing like, can I borrow a cup of sugar or some simple thing that you can make a quick phone call about or a text because sometimes the abuser's monitoring the text messages too that seems pretty innocuous and and not related to the abuse but that's really a code word and that other person's going to know this means you need help so that's that's a great piece of advice but i mean is that point are we talking call 911 is that is it is the cup of sugar line right 
So that's something you that you have to work that out, right? Yeah, you have to work that out in advance. What does that mean? Does that mean you want me to send my husband mm-hmm. over? Does that mean you want me to call the police? Does that right. mean right. you want me to come over and knock on the door with a cup of sugar, literally, and um, just try to break the the um, tension in the household? What does that actually mean? But to have a code word and then a plan for what happens after I hear that code word. Yes, that's great. You were talking earlier about not wanting to be as as a listener, not not jumping to the place that I think most parents and probably most friends would get to, which was how on earth did you let this happen? You know, when you kind of pounce on that person, when you feel like you've got enough information to make that judgment and jump on that person, you know, how could you let that happen? I thought you were smarter than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, isn't that kind of up there in the list of uh, don't do's? Yes, it's really important not to. Uh, the person probably feels already ashamed. There's usually a sense of shame, whether that's imposed by the abuser or just their own like feeling of like, how did I let myself get into mm-hmm. you know this mm-hmm. kind of a situation? Or, or maybe I deserve this and I am really the horrible person. But one way or another, there's a feeling of shame. So not adding to that feeling of shame pointing out things that you admire and respect and appreciate about the person, really just trying to leave the door open. It's so important for people to feel like I might've already talked to you about this five times. I might've already told you I was leaving five times. I'm still there. I'm still complaining about the same situation. And I need to know that I can come back to you one more time when I really am ready to leave and not have you say, well, I've already heard this. Don't bother me anymore because people you know, understandably, and police officers have said, well, we've been out to the house five times. We're tired of going out there because she, Mm. you know, saying she's ready to leave and then she's not. But typically it takes people about seven times before they're really ready to leave. There's a whole process of, you know, emotionally, especially if they've built a family together and made connections in the community together. It's a whole process to get to the point where you're ready to make that change. One of the things that I've heard about is that and I can see this with a parent, I can see this with a friend, and I can see it with a coworker, is that you listen to your friend who you know is being abused, and you get to a place where you lose patience. And it's like you said, you know, it's like, oh my God, are we going through this again? And what happens is, is that it would be easy to forget that it's not about you, the listener, it's about the person being abused. It's about their life, it's about their emotions, and it's not for you to interject how this makes me feel, right? because it's not about how the listener feels. It's about the person who's in trouble. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it has to be very hard to hang in there because you think the whole time, why don't you just bail out? Mm-hmm. You know, why don't, you know, I can, I'll swing by when he's not looking and take you out of there. Right. Absolutely. And it's hard even, you know, honestly, for professionals who work in the field to keep on just keeping the door open, keep on not being judgmental because, you know, the instinct is to run and rescue the person. It doesn't work that way. It won't work that way. And you never want the person to then feel so ashamed that she is, I've been talking about this for so long. I can't go back and say one more time that this happened and that I'm, I'm ready to leave because they've already heard this. So, right. So let, let's say you have someone who is now there and she's ready to go. I mean, she really is. She she cannot do it one more time. She's she's bottomed out. You know, she's ready. What kind of things come to mind that that need to be ready or planned out so that this doesn't wind up being the breakup homicide that we all are terrified about? So we always suggest or strongly strongly suggest that people not break up in private, preferably break up in some way that doesn't include seeing the person at all. If people are living together, of course, that's more difficult. But I know of of one woman who um, pretended to be ill, did not go to a family wedding. Husband went off to the family wedding, and she had the moving truck ready. And by the time he came home, she and the kids were gone. That's brilliant. It it was brilliant. That is absolutely I'd like to meet her just to shake her hand with that idea. That's amazing. I've always been in awe of that. But there are people that find those kinds of, it doesn't have to be that dramatic, but those kinds of creative ways to to get out. But the breaking up in person, thinking that we owe it to the other person to, you know, do it. To play nicely, right? To face, yeah, to to do it the way that, you know, you would hope a mature adult would do it, like face to face. We're going to have a conversation. That doesn't work with an abusive significant other. 
So not breaking up in person. If you feel very strongly that you're going to break, you have to see the person, do it with other people present. And even that can be really dangerous. So we really suggest the phone, the text, or just leave. Get to a safe place. If people know that they're preparing to leave, make sure you have paperwork stashed away, things that you might need if there are children involved, the shot records, that kind of thing. If the person, if the adult victim needs medication, whatever it is that you know you're going to need to take with you in order to go and have it have it work out for at least a few days of emergency meds and and you know contact information social security numbers that kind of thing that you're going to need and then have a safe place to go which is typically not a place that the other person would think to look for you and we've seen you know and bill you know of other cases where people have tried to be to do things the way you would expect to be able to do them in a healthier situation where they want to confront the person face to face and say, you know, well, I've got an apartment of my own and I'm going to be moving out. And the next thing you know, um, it's a tragedy. While that seems like a good, mature way to do it for when it's an abusive relationship, it's, it just doesn't work. Sure. And then for months afterwards, unfortunately, people have to be really careful because that is a, a very dangerous time for the person that's left. Well, I know of a number of instances where some couple has to all outward appearance broken up. And the guy says, well, look, okay, so we're breaking up and uh, I'll send my friend over to get my stuff or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. But what do you tell that person who is considering, since they did have a nice relationship, maybe at one time, Mm -hmm. see him one last time? What do you tell that person? No, no. We had a recent homicide in our county with a young woman that that's exactly what happened. And she was killed in a public place. Mm -hmm. That was a train station situation. Yes. At a train station. Yes. Trying to do exactly what you just described. We've had married couples trying to do exactly what you just described and, and being killed in the process. And as hard as it is, because most of the folks, most of the victims are really good people who really loved or still love the person that's been abusive. They want to see the best in people. And of course, it sounds like, of course, I'll see you one more time, but it doesn't work. So to just say, I'm really sorry, I just can't do that and then not do it is really the safest way to go. Better to be safe now and then later on think, well, maybe that would have worked out than to than to take the chance and end up with a tragedy. One question that just occurred to me was, is way down deep, why do guys do this? Or why do people do this to the people that supposedly they love? I mean, that's that, that's a book. You know, I'd read. There is actually a great book called Why Does He Do That? Um, I This is my personal opinion, that there are a lot of different reasons. I think um, it may be mental health. It may be post-traumatic stress that the abuser is experiencing. And when it's something like that, when it doesn't seem so evil, it just seems like, oh, this poor guy has had a hard life. Maybe he had a rough childhood. Different things have happened. It's harder for the victims to break free or to to quickly exit the relationship because they feel like, oh, he's just had a hard life. It's not that he's a bad person. Mm, yes. And, yeah, I've heard those. Um, yeah, and and I and we can I can probably fix this problem, which you can't. The person would need to want the problem to be fixed, the abuser, and then they would need to be willing and able to go and get some professional help to to change and to make their own changes. And then that whole thing of control and that whole wanting to to be in charge of another person, wanting the other person to behave in such a way that meets the abuser's needs. And some of that's cultural. I think uh, historically in many cultures, that's been the the man is the head of the household and rules the household. And the woman, you know, in some cultures, including some in this country, the woman was the property. Mm-hmm. So that has carried over, I think, as an underlying dynamic. And then I think the fact that typically for women in our in most cultures, certainly in this country, uh, the economic equality still isn't there. So women often are more reliant and where women will feel like, well, gee, if I if I don't have some guy to help me financially, I'm never going to make it. And then it turns out that the abusive guy ends up costing more money than, than they were ever going to be able to to benefit from. Um, so I think there are a lot of different cultural and personal dynamics. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no, no doubt about that. They're definitely drivers. And I, and I do think for a lot of women I've spoken with, those people are preyed upon by people who, who see that in them who are abusive people. You know, they, they kind of look for that, like somebody who's willing to put up with some of the things they do in the kind of manipulative testing process that takes place. 
you know, how much can you withstand and still stick around me? You know, so and still, and still think you can change me. Right. Absolutely. You know. That we have we had a we have a woman who's grown now and, and speaks sometimes about domestic abuse and sometimes speaks on behalf of our agency. And she and her four children lived in our shelter when the kids were really little. She was a professional woman. Her husband was a professional man. And she always says, I was raised with a father and brothers who treated women like we were special, like, you know, um, mm. carefully. And so as our relationship, as my marriage relationship started to deteriorate, I just kept thinking it must be my fault, which is what he kept telling her, because I've never seen a man treat a woman this way. So I must be doing something uh, wrong right. to bring this on. And I think that sometimes when people are raised in such a way that they are raised to believe that people are generally good and generally trusting and all of that, that it becomes harder for people to realize like, oh, maybe this is not one of those people that I can trust. Yes. Maybe he's not the, the storybook guy I thought he was, right? Sometimes around here, we call them projects. Yeah. Kind of a the guy is a project. He's a but work in progress project, that's right? That's exactly right. So now we always just joke about sticking to craft projects and staying away from the human projects. Yeah. And, and it's sad, you know, because you do want to help people. Mm -hmm. But what happens is, I, I guess my my poor analogy is it's never the idea that the lifeguard drowns trying to save the person who's mm -hmm. drowning. Unfortunately, that's a perfect analogy. But sure. Yeah, that says it all. And as a good friend of mine always says to me, potential's only potential, Beth. It just means they haven't done anything with it. <laughs> so, wow. So we try, we try to use that with some of the folks that we work with who said, but he has such potential. For people listening to this, Beth, who have some concerns, or maybe they just want to learn more about this type of thing, but where do you direct them? What are some of the most powerful resources that they can turn to for more information? So the, um, there are a lot of great websites. There's a national uh, website, the national, it's a national coalition against domestic violence. And when people go on the NCADV website, then you can, it will take you to the resources in every state. So that if someone, somebody called, one of my family members called me the other night concerned about a young woman that she used to work with who called her for help in Northern California. Mm. And I said, well, here, sweetie, just go on this website and it will take you to the, to the best resource in her community. And so that's national, it's available. And there's a great, there's a lot of great websites for depending on people, different people's situations, but there's a great website for young people, breakthecycle.org, mm -hmm. part of the Love Is Not Abuse uh, website. Really, if people just Google uh, domestic violence resources in my community, a lot of great resources will come up. And then, of course, you know, Bill, I always, you know, I think the world of your book, and I think it's tremendously helpful resource, certainly a great place to start would be to read Bill Mitchell's book. But I think it's a great resource for people because it, it shares your personal experience in a way that people can say, wow, that could have been one of my loved ones. But it also has terrific explanations about dynamics, about different situations, and about the resources that are available. So I think it's a great kind of beginning textbook for people that want to learn more about this situation, about domestic violence and the dynamics of domestic violence and abuse. Yes, thank you for that. The uh, And the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 800-799-SAFE, right? Correct. So, mm -hmm. But they're, they're very professional and, and they have decision trees they follow and they're you know, they're really, they're so good at it. And, but I'll tell you, I, I really have asked myself many times if I could sit on a hotline, that's got to take a lot of courage. It takes a special person to sit there when that phone rings. Completely agree, Bill. People always say to me when they hear what I do for, for work, oh, I don't know how you do it. I say, no, my true heroes at, at our agency are the people that answer the hotline or that go out in the middle of the night to respond out in person to an abuse situation. To hear over and over again, night after night on the hotline, the um, issues that people are calling about can really be, uh, it does take a special person to do that. And um, I'm really grateful that we have as many special people who work here and volunteer here as we do to help with that. And nationally, all over the country, there are hotlines like that. And the national number that you gave earlier will connect people to their local resource. What question or questions would you have asked yourself that maybe I didn't ask you today. I think one of the most important things as far as you know, working in this field or just for people in general, because this is not necessarily an uplifting topic, is not just why do you do it, but what, what keeps people going? I had a board member recently 
who was going through the line at Target with our wish list, and she said something to the checker about, you know, this is for the Laurel House wish list. And the, the woman looked at her, the checker, and said, oh, my gosh, Laurel House saved my life. And there are so many times that things like that happen mm. where people say, oh, I came to Laurel House 20 years ago. Or, oh, you guys were my counselor 10 years ago, and now I'm in, you know, finished college, and I'm working, and I'm happy. Wow. There that, are a that's lot amazing. Of I love that. So when you look at the statistics of, you know, one in four or one in three for younger people, it's typically one in three. When you look at those statistics, it's overwhelming. Um, but when you look at how many people, once they're able to start talking about it and just reach out for help, even if they're not ready to change the relationship, think great things can happen for those people and um, and often do. And I think it's really important for us to remember that. Wow, that's that's wonderful. I'm glad you remembered all that. Beth, so maybe what message would you put on a billboard? I think anything that helps, like you're not alone. There there was the national hotline was on a billboard for a long time. And I always thought that was just great because one of the, the keynotes of domestic abuse and one of the keynotes of the way that abusers work is that they isolate their victims. And so when people see on a billboard, like, oh, there's other people, this is this isn't just me. It just plants a seed. And I think that's another thing that we always talk about here is, you know, just because somebody didn't come in for help this time doesn't mean they're not coming at all. We had one woman that called the hotline, I think almost every night for a year after her kids went to bed because she was so afraid that she was going to go back to the abusive situation if she didn't stay in touch with somebody. So just because somebody makes a call, sounds desperate and doesn't show up for help doesn't mean you're not planting the seeds. And I think something that shows you're not alone, I think is really important. So that you plant the seed and when the person's ready and able, hopefully they'll take advantage of a hotline number and reach out and get some help. So Beth, I'd like to thank you for joining me today on uh, the When Dating Hurts podcast. This is all very brand new, but I feel like we've gotten off to a wonderful start. As I've said earlier, I came to you first because you were that first person I felt like I could rely upon to, to kind of embrace us and, and listen to our questions and our feelings and kind of help make sense out of things that really made absolutely no sense then and for the most part even now thank oh, you thank you so much bill please one in three women will suffer serious physical violence at the hands of an intimate partner it typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24 but could happen at any age we lost our daughter to dating violence but if we had read a book like When Dating Hurts back then, we believe things would have turned out differently. Do your daughter a favor. Do your family a favor. Dating violence is real. Believe me, I know. Read When Dating Hurts, then pass a copy on to someone who needs to see it. When it comes to something as insidious as dating violence, there are no do-overs.